Terry, you are welcome. Thank you once again to you and Wendy for accepting our invitation. Please, if you may come forward. Well, hello everyone. It's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this morning. I've enjoyed the weekend, uh, the Friday night, yesterday morning, and uh, now in your worship time this morning. It's a blessing to be here. I'm going to speak to you from... Okay, from Book of Romans, uh, where Paul's probably his most important epistle, it could be argued. He sets out the foundations of what it is to be a Christian. And uh, in Romans chapter 5, particularly, which I'm going to read a verse from, he is comparing and contrasting the results of Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. So Adam's disobedience ruined the human race. Uh, he spoiled the whole river of humanity. Uh, we are called children of disobedience. We're born that way. We, we were affected by Adam's sin. But the wonderful thing in Romans 5 is that Paul sets out that Jesus' obedience changed our whole experience, that those who are in Christ benefit enormously from what Jesus did. His obedience, his cross, his resurrection, the life of Christ is accredited to our account. Everything's changed. And he kind of says that again and again and again uh, through the chapter. I'm going to read just one of those verses. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Right, Just one of those several chapters that say similar things. For if by the transgression of the one, that is, if by Adam's sin, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Complete contrast happens when we're in Christ. Let's just, just pray. Father, thank you so much for your presence. Lord Jesus, we honour you as the Holy One. We're so grateful that you want fellowship with the likes of us. And we draw near to you now, Father, in Jesus' name. We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you just rest upon us, please? Come, Holy Spirit. I pray that, Lord, the words I say, you will invest with power, with revelation, Come, Holy Spirit, bless us, please. Let our lives be mightily affected by your truth. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we have this phrase, those who receive the abundance of grace, thank you, and the gift of righteousness reign in life. Now, reign in life is a pretty vivid phrase. Uh, uh, reigning in life. Are you reigning in life? I mean, it's like being on top, isn't it? It's like I'm not under the circumstances, I'm reigning, I'm reigning in life. 
That is the description of what it is to be a Christian, to be reigning in life. Uh, there are similar phrases. It says that he always leads us in his triumph uh, in Christ. He always leads us in triumph. It says this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. These, these are very rich phrases, reigning in life, more than conquerors, always in triumph. That, that is the description of the Christian. And I think for most of us, we think, hmm, I'm not sure that's how my wife would describe me. I'm not sure that's uh, what my kids see in me. I'm not sure that I look like that in the workplace. I, I wish I was more reigning in life. And we sometimes come to a kind of a crisis. Maybe we attend a conference and uh, we hear preaching, we put other things aside and we just give ourselves to God in a, a unique way. And we hear preaching and our hearts are stirred and we think, Lord, I want to reign in life. And maybe there's an invitation and maybe we, we come to the front and say, Lord, from now on, I want to reign in life. And uh, that sort of thing's great. A fresh motivation is excellent. It's great. We always need that. We need moments of stirring. And it could be at a conference. It could be at the end of the year. You come to the end of the year and you look back and say, oh, Lord, sorry about that. That wasn't, that wasn't all that I had hoped for. Uh, I'm not very proud of that year. Uh, now I've got myself a new diary. Uh, I, haven't messed up, I haven't messed up one page yet. Uh, right, here we go. New, a new start. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live differently, make a new start with God. I'm going to reign in life. Now, you know what I'm talking about, that, that fresh motivation. Now, the tragedy is having that moment, it doesn't necessarily result in good things because it's almost like there are two doors you could go through. And very often we go through the wrong one. We think, right, how am I going to reign in life? And we don't read what the verse says, we think, right, what shall I do? And so we might say, uh, I'm going to set the alarm clock back uh, um, an hour. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my whole Bible. This year, this year, I will read my whole Bible. What is it? Uh, 1,247 pages. Uh, that means, wow, I'm going to read like four chapters a day. I'm, I will read the whole Bible. One guy in America told me, he said, I said to God, I will witness to one person every day. He set himself, he set these rules to live by. And he said one night, he's just putting his head on the pillow, so exhausted, he thought, I have a witness today. So he got up, got dressed and ran down the street trying to find someone to witness to because well, these are the rules he's going to live by. He's going to live by these rules in order to reign in life. And uh, Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, you who will be justified by law have fallen from grace. You who justify yourself by things you do, by rules you keep, you've fallen from grace. Now that phrase, fallen from grace, is pretty common, we hear that. Or, you know, have you seen so-and-so, don't come to church much, maybe fallen from grace. And we tend to use it as meaning backsliding. But Paul, who invented the phrase, means that you've fallen from grace into rule-keeping. That's what it means in the passage. You've fallen into rule-keeping, and you've missed the way. You who be justified by law have fallen from grace. Now, he wrote that to the Galatians, 
Now, now, why did he write that to the Galatians? Let me just give you some background. Paul went to a place called Galatia. He preached the gospel. Lots of people got saved. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can read in Galatians chapter 3, for instance, the Spirit was among them. Signs and wonders were happening. It's a dynamic, glorious church. Paul has gone to this Gentile town, preached Christ. People got saved, formed into a church. He's done his apostolic work. There's a church. Wonderful. And being an apostle, he goes on to do it again in another town. And he leaves Galatia. When he leaves, what happens, the Bible tells us, is that what's called the Judaizers moved in behind him. Well, who were the Judaizers? Well, they're Jewish guys who have become Christians, but they're kind of confused between the old and the new. And so they, they come in to this, this Gentile church, people who've come to receive Christ, and they come in and they say, hey, welcome, uh, you have received our Messiah. We are delighted. Our, our Old Testament prophets told us that Gentiles would come and uh, accept our Messiah. Welcome, welcome. We're so pleased you've received our Messiah. Um, but we've known him for centuries. And uh, there are some things uh, you need to know. Uh, you mustn't eat that kind of food. Uh, but you must keep the feast days there are feast days every year must keep the feast days and you must keep the Sabbath and actually you should all be circumcised that's what they did that's what they said and Paul writes this letter to the Galatians which is his angriest letter and he says you fools that's quite strong eh? you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you is the word he uses bewitched that's a kind of strange word to use but they're adding Old Testament rules to make them sure that they're accepted. It's like, okay, you've accepted our Messiah. You've accepted Christ. Wonderful. Well done, well done. But you need to add these other things to make sure all is happy, all is okay, that you're really accepted. And so he, they obscure the clarity of the gospel. And Paul writes, what are you doing? What are you up to? You're missing the whole point. You're not under law, you're under grace. That's a big statement. I know when I got saved, no one told me those things. They never said you must do that and that. They said things like this, uh, now you're a Christian. I, I mean, I, I had no Christian background at all. I didn't know there was a gospel. And then I was told the gospel, I thought, wow, why have I never heard this before? All my sins are forgiven, I know I'm going to heaven. I thought, I didn't know there was such a message. This is amazing. And then I was told, great, you're, you're a Christian. Okay, got it. Thank you. Um, now listen, yeah, uh, you must have a quiet time every day. That's quaint. What's a quiet time? Oh, no, no, no. You must, you must read your Bible every day. Okay, got it, got it. Read my Bible every day. Uh, you must say your prayers every day. Okay, got it. Say your prayers every day. Okay. Um, and really, do you have to wear those clothes? I, think, I don't think you should dress like that. Oh, okay, okay, got it. And uh, I don't really think you should do your hair like that. Okay, okay, got it. Okay, so read my Bible every day, pray every day, wear different clothes, do my hair different. Oh, I feel so wonderfully freed by the gospel. I, I, I thought, what have I got into here? 
Did I get saved or did I pick up a lot of stuff? And that's what happened to these early Christians. They didn't know where they were now. Suddenly they don't know where they are. And so Paul says, no, you're not under law. You're not under law. That's an amazing statement. When Jesus said this, the law will never pass away. Paul says you're not under law. Who's right? Are Paul and Jesus arguing? That's a big question. I think if I said to you this morning, hands up those who think Christians are under the law, hands up those who think Christians are not under the law, I think I might, we'd be looking around and say, what are the elders doing? Uh, hold on. We're not quite sure, because it sounds like amazing stuff. So I just want to turn over the page to Romans chapter 7, where Paul, I think, in a very succinct way, in half a dozen verses, sets the thing out for us in a way we can understand. Now, the whole of Galatians is about it. In fact, the whole of the New Testament is about it. But here, in six verses, in Romans chapter 7, it's a very helpful statement. So I'm just going to read it, and then we'll, we'll work at it. Okay, Romans 7. Don't you know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? I mean, that sounds pretty final, doesn't it? Then he says this, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. If her husband dies... She's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, verse 4, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6, now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Okay, so Paul is giving the illustration of marriage. And he's effectively saying, the law is like our husband, we're married to the law, has authority over us as long as we live. We are married to the law, the law is our husband, the law tells us what he requires. You should not do this, you should not do that, etc. His is our husband, he's over us, he tells us what he requires of us, he has authority over us. Now I just want to feed something in which I'll come back to. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren and the sisters, who accuses us day and night. Uh, the word Satan means accuser. And in, in Revelation it says, he accuses us day and night. Now it doesn't say anywhere else in the Bible there's anything else he does day and night. So I take it that accusation is Satan's greatest weapon. And that means he's always gonna say to you, you're useless, call yourself a Christian, you're hopeless. It's supposed to be godly. You're not a Christian. You're hopeless. He will bombard your mind with accusation. He does it day and night. All right? We need to know that. It says so in the Bible. He accuses us. It's no good thinking, Satan's horrible. I won't go downtown, so I won't meet Satan. 
No, Satan comes to you while you're praying. Satan comes to you while you're reading the Bible. He's very, very busy accusing you, telling you how bad you are, all right? So we'll come back to that later. But he gets in on this deal that this husband of ours is saying, this is the standard. This is what I require of you. And we're married to the husband, the law. And so we obey him, we submit to him. And you can't argue with him because it's good law. You can't say, no, I don't think that. No, no, it's very good. The law is good. The law's holy, the law's good, but we've, we feel kind of trapped and we feel we're not quite making it and we've got this accuser who has a go at us all the time. And, and so this husband tells us what he requires. You can't argue because he's right, but he never lifts a finger to help. Right? So I don't want to see too many wives saying, hmm, sounds familiar, dear. No, see, he doesn't actually help you. This is what he wants, but he doesn't help you. And Jesus said this, he's never going to pass away. So you're permanently married to a pure, overbearing husband who never helps you and he's never going to die. So you're stuck. And that's what religious people are. They're stuck with this frightening standard. Now, amazingly, in verse 4, Paul says a revolutionary thing which I read to you. Therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. See, it sounds like this husband needs to die. It gets get rid of this husband. He's dreadful. He's so overbearing. He's so, he's so pure. He's so holy. He never helps me. Why wish he'd die? No, the Bible says he's never going to die. But he does say this in verse 4. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Paul loves the phrase, in Christ. The word Christian only appears three times in the whole New Testament. Christian, three times. But the phrase, in Christ, is there dozens and dozens, scores of times. You are in Christ. That's, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone was in Christ, we were in him when he was crucified. I was crucified with him. So Paul is saying, what happened to Jesus is accredited to your account. So when Jesus died, something happened to us. Now Jesus had two relationships with the law. Let's put it that way. What was the first? The first one was this. Jesus was innocent. That's the Bible word. He was perfect. He was an innocent man. He never sinned. At the end of his life, he says, which of you convinces me of sin? No one could. He said, the devil's coming. He's got nothing on me. So Jesus was an innocent man. He was in a perfect relationship with the law. He could fulfill the law. He did what the law required. He's pure. He's holy. He's got no problem. But when we come to the cross, the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, God placed on Christ all our sin, all our failure, all our shame. And on the cross, Jesus took it all for us. He was, the Bible says God made him to be sin. He was the personification of sin. Hanging on the cross, he's cursed. God turns his back. He's forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? He carries away our guilt completely. The law is vindicated. He dies like the biggest sinner the world's ever seen. He is made to be sin and the law is upheld. He dies. He pays the full price. 
He died to sin. He died for the law once for all. It's all done. And from the cross, he said, it's accomplished. It's finished. I've done it. Jesus, the pure, holy, spotless Son of God, was made to be sin and took the full crushing blow of the law's requirement. And he died to sin. And he died to the law. And so Paul says, you were made because you were in Christ. You see, this relationship, someone's got to die. The law's never going to die. So we who are in Christ died with Christ. That's what Paul says is our way of escape. We're not under law because we've died to the law once for all. It's already happened. And so Paul is saying this, therefore, my brothers, you are made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Then it says this, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Now, that's a, this verse is a wonderful verse. You died to the law, you died to that husband, that you might be joined to him who was raised from the dead. Who's that? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus was raised from the dead. So we've died to that husband that we might be joined to this husband, Jesus, that we might bear fruit. Now, that's never been, that, that's never been mentioned before. In connection with the law, there's no reference to bearing fruit. The law did not make me bear fruit. The law is written in stone. It's the letter. It says here, the letter kills. It's just written in stone. It doesn't change me. In fact, it's interesting. Some people say, Terry, you mustn't preach this. You must have some law. You've got to have some law. No, it says in Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have been based on law. If a law had been given that could impart life, the Bible says this, the law can't impart life. It can't communicate life. It's a husband who told me requirements, they're written in stone, but it doesn't impart any life. If the, if the law imparted life, let's get, let's get into the schools. Let's get in there. Let's get into all those teenagers. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Just tell them. If the law imparts life, just tell them and that will change them. But it doesn't. The law doesn't change anybody. It doesn't impart any life. If a law had been given, it would impart life. This like righteousness would come by the law. Just tell them the rules. It doesn't change them. In fact, Paul says later on, it even provokes the law, even provokes sin. There's something about the law. That's what it says in Romans 7. It provokes sin. It's like, it's like you're walking in a garden. You think, aren't these flowers pretty? Aren't these lawns nice? And then you see this sign, keep off the grass. And something inside you says, whose grass is it? It's like the law provokes reaction. That's what the Bible says. It's not me, it's what the Bible says. And so the law doesn't actually change us. It tells us God's holy requirements, but it doesn't impart any life. The law is an impotent husband. He doesn't impart life. He doesn't change me from the inside. He just tells me what the rules are, tells me what I'm supposed to do, but he can't impart life to me. 
He's an impotent husband. He leaves me feeling undone. It makes me feel, I need a saviour. That's the whole point. I need a saviour. But now we've died to that husband that we might be joined to this new husband, it says in verse 4, that we might bear fruit. Wow, we found a, a fruit-imparting husband. Found a husband who's not, who's not impotent. He's a very potent husband. He says things like this, my peace I give you. My joy I pour it into your heart. My love I pour into your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is a different kind of husband. He's a life-imparting husband. He doesn't just tell me rules, he gives me life. It's not the letter which kills, it's the spirit that gives life. It's a completely new deal. God wants us to understand, thank you. God wants us to understand that the new covenant is completely different to the old. The old covenant could not change me. And right back in Jeremiah, God says, I'll put a new covenant. I'll write my laws in their heart. A new spirit I'll give them. That's the contrast between the old and the new. And the tragedy, beloved, is that when Christians get confused between the two, which was what was happening in Galatia, they know they're saved. At least they think they're saved. They're full of the Spirit. But now they're, oh, we've got to do these things as well. And Christians get into that. You say, if you meet some Christians sometimes, you say, how are you going? You say, oh, a bit up and down. How are you doing as a Christian? A bit up and down. I'd like to suggest... It's not so much up and down as husband to husband. That's what we tend to be. We tend to be husband to husband. We tend, we tend to say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. I'm not being everything I should have. I'm really bad. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll do better. I, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll cultivate my relationship with my old husband. That'll do us okay, won't it? That's not the way. You try that in the world. You don't please your new husband by cultivating a relationship with your old one. Now you walk away from that. You've left that. The law, it says in Hebrews, the law made nothing holy. See, that's the summing up of the book of Hebrews. The law made nothing holy. It didn't work. It can't do it. You need a relationship with a life-imparting husband. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. You'll bear much fruit. I'll make you fruitful on the inside. So what do we have to do? We have to keep close to our husband. Stay in me. Remain in me. Abide in me. Keep close to me. I'll change you from the inside. I'll cause you to bear fruit. You don't, see, we don't, we don't go through these rules in order to keep God happy. You don't need a way to the way. He is the way. But even to the Laodicean church, Jesus says, you're lukewarm. You know, as a church, you're lukewarm. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking. I feel like I'm outside. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. He doesn't say, you're lukewarm. I'm knocking the door. If you will keep the rules, I'll think about it. He doesn't say that at all. He says, if you hear my voice, open the door. I'll come in. I'll come in. He's full of love for us. He never changed. I've loved you with an everlasting love. You look at that, you see these disciples at the cross, they all run away, they're useless. Three years of training, run away, run away. And Jesus comes back from the dead. He says to Mary Magdalene, go and tell those useless, hopeless. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, go tell my brothers. 
you know, it's in the past he calls them disciples. So I call you friends. After the cross, he says, my brothers. Go tell my brothers. Peter, what are you doing? Come and have some breakfast. Yeah, he make breakfast for them on the beach. Lovely sizzling fish. It's just love, beloved. It's just knowing you're beloved, knowing you're treasured, knowing you're delighted. And that's the center of the Christian life. It's not trying to keep these rules. That, that's where we get stuck. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what it says. There is no condemnation. The old King James translation added a phrase because it sounds so free. No condemnation for those who guys who do this and do this. It wasn't there. They crossed it out in up-to-date translations. It's just if you're in Christ. He took the guilt. He took the condemnation. He died for our sin. He took it all away. He declared us righteous as a gift. We reign in life. Of course we reign in life. Because we don't get back under that thing of trying to justify myself. Paul says about his contemporaries in Philippians, he says, they go around trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law. So they should receive the righteousness that comes as a gift. Amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? Otherwise, we're going to be vulnerable. And we don't reign in life because you're all the time under the, under, am I doing enough? I used to, I mean, for myself, when I saw the grace of God, it was like getting born again, again. Because I was, I was always trying hard to earn God's smile. Instead of understanding, no, I have his smile. Some people say, when you pray, start with confession. Now, Jesus didn't say that. Now, it sounds like, you know, clean the act up. It's a good thing to do. Sounds kind of logical. It's not biblical. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You see, if you start with, well, just confess things first. That's why people hate prayer, actually. You start with, I'm sorry about this, Lord. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then the devil comes creeping up behind you and says, and this, says, oh yeah, that as well. Sorry about that. And, and you just, and some people hate prayer because prayer is like, oh, it's so miserable. I'm such a wretch. And you sort of dig a hole in the ground and jump in and dig deeper and deeper. If you get back to the ground level again, you did well. No, I, when I worship, I pray I worship. Thank you, Jesus. Look at the Psalms. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. If you lose the Lord's Prayer, which I find very helpful structure, you will come to and forgive us our trespasses. It's not that you get careless, God help us, but you don't have a sin relationship with God. You have a grace relationship. You are accepted in the Beloved. You're his. You see, otherwise, if I can put it this way, I'll just pretend I'm one of, I'm one of, I'm one of the wives here, all right? I'm one of the wives. So I get up tomorrow morning, I'm going to pray. Lord, bless my husband at work today. Uh, Lord, I, I'm, I'm concerned for him. He seems tired. Lord, let his light shine. Uh, make him a blessing. Give him wisdom for the job. And I wish he was okay. I feel I'm worried about him, really. Uh, Maybe I could surprise him. Yeah, I know, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll make him a really nice meal. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll get a nice meal. I'll shoot down to the shop. What would he like? Oh, I know what he'd like. And then Satan comes and says, praying. Oh, no, I'm praying. So to be praying. Um, oh, yes, praying. Oh, yeah, I'm praying. Um, uh, yeah, no, bless the missionaries. The missionaries are coming on Friday. Uh, bless the missionary supper. Uh, when they come and tell us about what they're doing, 
uh, in the mission field. And uh, uh, Lord, I pray you really stir us uh, by things they say. And uh, bless the supper. Oh, yeah. I said I'd do the salad. I haven't got the salad. I, I better go and do the salad. Yeah, I, oh, I know what I, I could get the salad. At the same time, I get something for my husband. That'd be nice. I'll, I can just get down to the town. I think I could get home. Yeah, I could get the salad. I'll get something nice. And then Satan comes. Oh, mighty woman of intercession, are you prevailing in the heavenlies? You think, prevailing in the heavenlies? I'm useless. I try and pray. My brain goes out the window. I'm useless. I can't pray for toffee. I'm a hopeless. I'm a useless. Where's my Bible reading? I'm reading the whole Bible through, and I, I got to uh, Leviticus, didn't I? That's where I got to. Uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 4. Uh, that's where I am. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Um, the priest shall remove from the sacrifice all the fat of the bull of the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them which is on the bone, loins, the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys. <laughs> you see, and so Satan comes and says, getting a lot out of it, are we? And you say, I don't have a clue what it's all about. I'm a useless Christian. See, so we got the meeting yesterday. Thank you, Jesus. This morning, I'm a useless Christian. Why? Well, I can't pray. I don't understand the Bible. I'm a useless Christian. Hey, did that take you out of Christ? Did that take you out of his triumph, out of his victory? No, of course it didn't. I, I'm reading through the Bible. I went through Leviticus recently. It's jolly hard work. It doesn't change anything. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I'm, I'm righteous in Christ. I'm not going to go husband to husband. Oh, I can't read the Bible hard. That's, of course. You say, don't you read the Bible then, Terry? Yeah, I read it a lot. I'm trying to explain it verse by verse now. I don't read it to impress God. I don't read it and say, whole chapter this morning, Lord, pretty good, eh? Point, points for that. I don't read it for that. I'm not trying to impress God. I'm hidden in one who's already impressed him. That's what I said. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm not trying to impress God. Jesus has impressed him. He's my righteousness. I don't have to do it. I read the Bible because I want to find out. It's full of incredible stuff. Wonderful stuff that sets me free and teaches me how to pray and loads of life to live. Of course I read it, but I'm not reading to impress God. I'm not praying like half an hour this morning. Look, how about that? Ooh. No, no, no. I'm praying someone answers. And if, if I should sleep through my quiet time, I'm still righteous. Because it's not down to the stuff that I do. I do it because I want to do it. I want to learn. I want to pray. I want to get answers to prayer. It's dynamic. It's exciting. But I'm not doing to impress God. That's already happened at the cross. It's finished. Do you understand, beloved? It's finished. We are in Christ. We have died. The price is paid. The cross is behind us. All our guilt, all our shame has gone. All that attempt to justify myself, it's all over. We are justified freely as a gift. We reign in life because of the abundance of grace. That's what the verse says. And the gift of righteousness. 
We don't reign in life because we're doing well. It doesn't say that. It says we reign in life because we receive grace, not law. Paul says to the Galatians, you've gone back under law. What are you doing? You've missed the point. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand fast in your freedom. That's what he says. That's about relationship with the law. That's not about sin even. If you read that in Galatians in its context. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, in your liberty and don't go back under the yoke of bondage. That's what he says. We're free. We're righteous as a gift. Put on your beautiful garments, the Bible says. And so, beloved, grace sets us free. We don't have to do stuff to justify ourselves. Jesus has done it. Amen? We, we're not under law. It's over. We're not under law. Jesus has changed everything for us. That is the New Testament. Let me just change, close with a couple of illustrations. In the Old Testament, even, when they came to God, they came through the priests, and they had to offer a perfect sacrifice. So they would get a lamb and present it to the priest who had to inspect it. And it had to be a perfect lamb because it's speaking about what Jesus will be one day. It has to be a perfect lamb. And you'll find in the book of Malachi, God complains about Israel because they say, well, it's a time for sacrifice. Oh, that lamb's blind. Let's give it to God. Well, that lamb's got a disease, don't that one? That would do that for sacrifice. God says that won't do. I don't want you giving me your rubbish. I want a perfect lamb. So it had to be perfect. They had to find a perfect lamb. And so they brought their lamb to the priest. And when they brought it to the priest, the priest takes the lamb and inspects it. Is it blind? Has it got any broken limbs? Is it disease? He's not looking to see, is this all torn? We're not interested if that's tall. We're not interested if you've got all mud on here. It's irrelevant. It's the lamb we're looking at. All eyes are on the lamb. And the priest would look at the lamb and he would use these words when he inspected eyes, limbs, disease. He would say these words, I find no fault in it. Hallelujah. There's nothing wrong with my lamb. But there's nothing wrong with my lamb. Jesus said, which of you convinces me of sin? There's nothing wrong with my lamb. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He's a perfect lamb. And I was, I was, this, all, this honestly happened to me. I was praying one day, and I'm just asking God stuff, and, and I felt God reminding me of the story in the Old Testament when Jacob, who was a bit of a crook, came to his blind old father, Isaac, and he wants a blessing from his father. And he knows his father has a son he really loves. He's called Esau. Esau's a hunter. He's gone out hunting. So in Esau's absence, he puts on Esau's clothes that smell of Esau. He puts hair around his hands, around his neck. He goes hidden in the sun that the father loves, hoping against hope that his father won't say, hey, what are you doing now? He's, he's pretending to be the son that the father loves. And I'm just praying, and I felt God reminded me of that story very vividly. And I felt God said to me, don't fear that I'll find you hidden in the son that I love, because I placed you in the son 
that I love. Isaac loved Esau. The father loves the son, Jesus. I'm hidden in him. I come in him. And I'm not to fear that he'll find me. What are you doing in there? No, no, he placed me in there. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings hidden in the son that he loves. We're hidden in Christ. And so when you come to God, it's like, it's like and I sometimes do this, I look, it's like catch the fragrance. Think of his obedience. How he went to the cross for you. How he did everything to please you. Just sniff in, sniff in, Father. Sniff in the beauty of your son. I'm hidden in there. It's all accredited to my account. The free gift, the free gift of righteousness. That's what the Bible says. We're accepted in the son that he loves. The son is perfect. We're hidden in him. Hallelujah. John Bunyan, the uh, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, Puritan, he said one day he was feeling low and he said, I saw a vision of Christ as my righteousness. He, I suddenly saw Christ, Christ, my righteousness. And he said, in that moment, I realized it didn't matter how I feel. I couldn't take away from that righteousness. Or if I was feeling good, I couldn't add to that righteousness. That's unchanging righteousness, and it's mine. And he said, he's my righteousness, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, beloved, when I wake up tomorrow, I'm righteous. When you wake up tomorrow, if you're in Christ, you're righteous. You're accepted in the beloved. You're righteous. His unchanging righteousness is given to us. It takes off all the heaviness. It overcomes Satan's constant accusation. You overcome him with the blood of the Lamb. That's what it says in Revelation. He accuses us day and night. We overcome him with the blood of the Lamb. We say, no, the price is paid for all that. It's done. We stand firm on that ground. Amen? So, beloved, we're not in Adam anymore. That's what the whole of chapter 5 says of Romans. We're not in Adam anymore. When Adam sinned, we became sinners. I don't remember being in Adam when he sinned. I can't think, oh, yeah, I remember. I took the fruit. No, I don't remember it. The Bible says I was in Adam. The whole human race was in Adam. His sin polluted us. But now, hallelujah, I'm in Christ. And I don't remember dying on the cross, but the Bible says I did. The Bible says he took my guilt away. So we stand righteous in his sight. It says in Hebrews, Old Testament priests could never sit down because they're forever offering another sacrifice. And they just keep on offering it now, another one, another one. They never sat down. Then it says about Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sin sat down having perfected us for all time isn't that good news he sat down he's done it he's perfected us for all time we are righteous for all time god's done it god's made it true that's who we are in christ hallelujah may god help us to understand this i was preaching once in constantia actually many years ago and there was a, a, a tent preaching in this tent and uh, I preach this sort of stuff and at the end there's hundreds of people there and I see this great big Afrikaans guy as it happens walking towards me and he's got his wife with him it's a very hot day and people are in uh, you know short sleeve shirts and shorts and, and she's in a navy blue suit and gloves and a hat 
And, and she walked towards me. I see them coming to me because he's a huge guy. And she said to me, is what you said true? I said, it's just Bible, verse, 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 it's the Bible. She said, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember, but I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. And we just prayed together for a moment and they went on their way and I did. And I was there the next year and I saw this guy through the crowd again and I saw him walking towards me and his wife, he said, she looked so bright and he said to me, it's like I've got a new wife. She got freed from trying hard to be accepted, trying hard to be religious, feeling failure, taking all the accusation. Hey, beloved, there is no condemnation. Now we live in fellowship with our new husband. We feed on him. We let him pour his love into our hearts. So we take time to drink it in. Abide in me, Jesus said. Just keep there, stay in me. I'm a, I'm a potent husband. I'll put my love in you. I'll make you bear fruit from the inside. Enjoy this love relationship. God will change you from the inside. Not the letter that kills, the spirit that gives life. Father, I just thank you for your church here. Thank you for the history, your walk with them. I pray for individuals here to be helped by truth, to be released by your grace, to enjoy your sweet favor, and to know the wonder of the gospel in a way that's life-changing. I pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.